Welcome to another episode of the Chef Educator, the show that provides and discusses various teaching tools, tips, and techniques for the culinary, hospitality, and pastry arts educator. And now, coming to you through the airways from Palm Beach County, Florida, here's your host, doctor, professor, and chef, Mr. Colin Roche. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Chef Educator Podcast. My name is Dr. Colin Roach, and I'm your host. Today's episode is titled, Improving Teaching Through Practice. Now, before we start on today's topic, I want to give a little background information like I always do on the podcast for our new listeners. This is your first time? Well, the Chef Educator Podcast was created to be a comprehensive resource for both new and seasoned culinary, baking and pastry, and hospitality teachers, instructors, and faculty at both secondary and post-secondary educational institutions. Our hope is to offer a collection of practical and effective teaching tools, tips, and techniques that we can all use in our classrooms and our labs. And if this is of interest, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast. It's free and you can do it on your favorite podcast app, or you can always listen to the show at our website at www.chefeducator.com. And all these links and everything I'll be talking about on the show, I'll be putting below in the show notes. so You can always find them there. Okay, well, in the past few episodes of this podcast, I've talked a lot about working memory, which refers to a mental place where we juggle several things at once. We also learned that when it comes to working memory, if we try to juggle too many things at one time, one or more of those things will be dropped. And as teachers, you may be saying to yourself, that I just described your typical workday because we all know that teaching is quite demanding on working memory. It is well known that teachers need to have factual or subject matter knowledge, which is very important to teaching. Something that is not as well known, though, to the average person is that teachers also need to have pedagogical content knowledge, which is equally important for teachers to have. Pedagogical is They're the study of teaching, how we teach. It's not only the subject that we have that we're an expert in baking and cooking or hospitality or costing or accounting, front desk, whatever that may be. Yes, we need that. But that's useless if it's just stuck in our head and we don't effectively convey that information to our students. And that's where pedagogy comes in, a pedagogy. You know, that's where we take that study of teaching and we learn different tools and techniques and things that ways that we can get that information from our brain into our students' brains and so that they understand it. So if teaching is a cognitive skill, just like any other, how can we apply what we have been discussing in the past episodes of this podcast to our teaching so that we can increase the space in our working memory, our factual subject knowledge, and our procedural knowledge? Well, as many of you have heard me say many times on this podcast, it is virtually impossible to become proficient at a mental task without extended practice. Therefore, our best bet for improving our teaching is to practice teaching. Okay, okay, now, I know many of you may be saying to yourself, duh, hey, I've been a teacher for years, and every day I'm in the classroom, so I am practicing. So let me be clear. Practice is not 
synonymous with experience. Experience means you are simply engaged in the activity. Practice means that you are trying to improve your performance. So in other words, many of us may have a lot of experience teaching, but do we practice our teaching? For example, you may not be an especially good driver, even though you may have been driving for, I don't know, 20 years. Those 20 years certainly make you experienced, but just because you've done a lot of driving doesn't mean you're well-practiced. And that is because for almost all of those 20 years, you probably didn't try to improve. At the beginning, you know, when first learning to drive, you most likely did, you know, work at your driving skills, you know, when you first got behind the wheel. However, after perhaps, you know, a few weeks, months of practice, you know, I bet your driving skills seemed adequate to you, so you stopped trying to improve. And that is nothing to be ashamed about, because it's what most people do for driving, as well as most other skills we learn, such as golf, tennis. Uh, typing, going jogging. What we do is we get to be proficient and then we stop. And unfortunately, the same thing seems to be true for teaching as well. A great deal of data shows that teachers improve during their first five years in the field, as measured by student learning. After five years, however, the curve gets flat and a teacher with 20 years of experience is, on average, no better or worse than a teacher with 10 or even five years of experience. And even sometimes those teachers are worse. It appears that most teachers work on their teaching until it is above some threshold and they're satisfied with their proficiency. Now, it is easy to criticize such teachers and think they should be always striving to improve. We all like to think that we're always seeking to better ourselves but we must also be realistic. Practice, as I'm about to describe, is hard. It takes a great deal of work, and it's very likely work that would infringe on time that could be better spent or might be spent with your family or in other pursuits. But what I'm going to share with you, though, you know, though it's work, is still manageable and something I hope you all do. It's a practice that I engage in myself. But first, we need to define practice. As just said, it's more than just engaging in the activity. You also have to try to improve. But how? Well, first, practice entails getting feedback from knowledgeable people. You know, think about it. Writers get feedback from their editors. Sports teams, they well, they hire coaches who then give feedback to the players. Researchers, they get feedback on their experiments and, and their research from expert colleagues, you know, through their peer review. And when you think about it, how can you possibly improve unless there is some assessment of how you are doing? Without feedback, you don't know what you need to do or what will make you a you know, better golfer, a better athlete, a better researcher, or even a better teacher. Now, yes, it's true that teachers get feedback from their students. We can usually tell if a lesson is going well or poorly by just surveying our classroom. However, that sort of feedback is not sufficient because it's, it's not terribly specific. For example, our students' bored expression may tell us that they aren't listening, right? They're looking out the windows, they're on their phones or something like that. They could be bored. But it doesn't tell us what we might do differently to get them to listen or to pay attention, you know, why they're not listening in the first place. 
In addition, we probably miss more of what's happening in our classrooms than we think we do. If you're like me, you're busy teaching, right? We don't have the luxury of simply watching what is happening in the classroom all the time. You know, we're up there, we're at the board, we're up in front, we're doing a thing, right? We're performing, we're talking, we're demonstrating, we're doing board work, which makes it hard to think about how things are going when we're in the middle of trying to make them go well, right? We're doing the teaching. Now, on top of that, it's very hard to critique your own teaching because we're not impartial observers of our own behavior. Some people lack confidence and are harder on themselves than they ought to be, whereas others, which I personally think is actually most of us, interpret their world in ways that are favorable to themselves. Social psychologists call this the self-serving bias. When things go well, it's because we are skilled and hardworking. When things go poorly, it's because we were unlucky or because someone else made a mistake. For these reasons, it is usually quite informative to see your class through someone else's eyes, which I will talk about shortly. Now, in addition to requiring feedback, practice usually means investing time in activities that are not the target task itself, but done for the sake of improving that task. For example, aspiring chess players don't just play lots of chess games. They also spend considerable time studying and memorizing chess openings and chess moves and analyzing the matches that other experts have played. You know, they're trying to gain some knowledge from that. Athletes of all sorts do weight and cardiovascular training to improve their endurance in their sport. To summarize, if you want to be a better teacher, you cannot be satisfied simply to gain experience as the years pass. You must also practice, which means consciously trying to improve, seeking feedback on your teaching, and undertaking activities for the sake of improvement, even if they don't directly contribute to your job. Now, there are lots of ways we, as teachers, can do these things, with some taking more time and effort than others. But here are a few I have tried and I recommend. The first method that you can use for getting and giving feedback is to use peer observations. And here is how I recommend you start. First, you need to work with at least one other person. But it could be more. You can work with a group if that works. Working with someone else is very helpful because they will see things in your class that you cannot, simply because they are not you and thus can be more impartial. Of course, they also have different experiences, different backgrounds than you, and that helps as well. You know, it gives them a different perspective. Furthermore, as anyone who's ever exercised knows, having a buddy helps you to stick with a difficult task. So, you know, you help each other, you motivate each other. It's that teamwork. Second, you should recognize that working on your teaching will be a threat to your ego. Teaching is very personal, so taking a close look at it and inviting one or more other persons to do the same is going to be, or could be, kind of scary. And this is a genuine concern. Therefore, don't just shrug off that concern and say, well, I can take it. But instead, put measures in place to deal with it. And I'm going to provide some suggestions shortly on how to do that so it doesn't get out of hand or it doesn't hurt someone's feelings. So here are the steps I suggest you take. Step one, identify another teacher or two with whom you would like to work. 
Naturally, it would help if this person or persons teach the same grade or subject as you. And more important, however, is that you trust each other and that your partner is as committed to this project, this practice as you are. For step two, I suggest you videotape yourselves and then watch those videos, though I think you should watch them alone first. Talking about videotaping, there's a lot of value in videotaping your teaching. As I mentioned earlier, it is difficult to watch your class while you're busy teaching it, but you can always go back and watch a video of that teaching at your leisure, and you can replay important parts. Now, if you don't own a video camera, you know, you could just use your smartphone. That's the easiest one. They have little uh, like holders, tripod holders, adapters for phones now, and you just set that up, put it on a desk somewhere, and we'll talk about that. Now, if you teach at the secondary school or younger grades, you may want to send a note home with the students to let you know, the parents know that your child is going to be videotaped, but that these videos are purely you know, for your professional development. They're not going to be used for any other purpose. They're not going to be published. They're not going to be put on, you know, on the internet. And tell them that the, the videos will be erased at the end of the school year. You know, you're going to get rid of all of them. And of course, you should always check with your principal or your department chair or your dean in advance and explain what you want to do. And videotaping your teaching is a, is a proven technique. So it, the research is out there. So it's not like it is doing something different. So you can bring that to their attention if needed. But usually they will support you on this. Now, as far as setting up the equipment, I suggest, as mentioned, use a tripod so it doesn't get all shaky, and then try and set the camera in a place where you think it will capture most of the class. And be sure to switch it on at the start of the lesson. Now, the first few videos will probably give you important information logistically of you know where the camera should be and where's the best vantage point for setting up the camera in the future. You might also find that you are not able to video every type of lesson. You know, I found it easy to do a cooking demo, you know, because it's right there and at one table, you're not moving. But, you know, if you're doing like a lecture class and you're moving around, you're checking with students, using active learning, student engagement, maybe hard because you're going to be moving. So then maybe put it in the back where you can get a really wide angle. That may be the best for you. Now, also picking up audio is frequently difficult. So if you don't have an external microphone, you know, which can help, you know, these, especially if you're doing like a participatory lesson and the students are all talking, it's hard because you may not pick up the students, you know, input, but, you know, do the best you can. And, and if you look online, there's cheap, cheap, cheap uh, microphones that go with smartphones now, and you can put those on and it'll be very effective for you. Another suggestion is that your first video, you film a lesson that you know typically goes well, you know, one that you're proud of, you've done, you've mastered it. And it's like, oh, this is one of my good ones. Because as I mentioned, it's not going to be easy to watch yourself, and it's even harder to critique yourself. So stacking the deck in your favor at first, you know, at first, you know, beginning, it's a good idea because, you know, this is one that you're really good at. And there'll be time enough later on to film and examine a lesson that you suspect doesn't usually go so well. And that's the one you're really going to study and try to improve. Now, regarding the students in the class, I've found that it usually takes a class or two for them to be, you know, get accustomed to the idea of being videotaped. Their concern, though, generally doesn't last long before they forget the camera's even there, especially if you explain what the camera and the video is for, that it's only for your use and it's for you to get better and maybe you're trying out a new teaching technique or something and you want to look at that and get feedback on it and it's not going to be shared and the students will forget about it really quickly. Now, as far as you go, it'll probably take a couple of videos before you become accustomed to hearing your voice and seeing yourself on video. But once you have these 
initial reactions out of the way, you can then start to focus on the content. And I suggest you watch these videos with a notepad in hand and don't begin by judging your performance. Consider first, you know, what surprises you about the class period? You know, what do you notice about your students that you didn't already know? You know, what do you notice about yourself? You know, spend some time observing. Don't really critique, just observe. You know, you might see mannerisms that you didn't expect or you stand at the wrong place or, you know, do you, do you get the students engaged? Do you cut them off? Is there interruptions? You know, things like that. It's just really basic observations, taking some notes. And many athletes do this, so don't think it's really odd. I mean, other industries, other professions do this. Like athletes, they they film themselves all the time. Their techniques, it's a me- you know, method of improving. You know, golfers, golfers are always video. Do you ever take a golf lesson? They usually video and they show it back. Now it's very easy with cameras on your phone to do that as well. So coaches use that a lot. You know, it helps perfect the swing, you know, your stance, the follow through of the club. My son plays travel baseball and on his high school team, and they're often filming the players. You know, when they're batting to see the mechanics of the swing, they do this with their pitchers to see how they release the ball and how they push off the mound. So there's lots of, you know, sports and uses for videotaping to see how you do something. Obviously, they do this with acting as well and theater and film. Okay, I'm going to pause right here at this halfway point in the show and just tell you that if you like the show or this episode, why not show your support by buying us a cup or two of coffee, which will help defray some of the out-of-pocket expenses that we have in producing this podcast that we give away for free. You can easily do that by going to www.buymeacoffee.com slash chefroach. Individuals can support the show also through Patreon at www.patreon.com slash drprofessorchef. We truly appreciate any help or support you provide. If you contribute just the price of a cup of coffee a week, you know, two, three, four dollars, you'll be helping to support the hosting, the purchasing, the creation, the production of our episodes and our shows, as mentioned, that we give away for free. There's a lot that goes in behind the scenes, so it's all self-funded and also by those supporters out there that do it through this way. And if you are a company or a business out there that's interested in sponsoring the podcast or advertising with us to help defray these costs and get your name out there, you can contact us through email at foodmedianetwork at gmail.com. That's foodmedianetwork at gmail.com. And of course, I will put all of these links in the show notes and description section of this episode below. Okay, back to the show. Okay, so now that you've watched your videos of yourself teaching, we can move on to step three, which is to bring in your partner. Now, some teachers find it easy to first watch videos together of other teachers that you don't know. They're posted all over the internet. And the reason to watch these tapes of other teachers that you don't know first as a group or as a partner is to gain practice and constructive observation and commenting, you know, and talking about it in a non-threatening situation before you move on to the personal videos of yourselves. This can help you and your partner get a sense of whether you both are compatible for this work. But others, myself included, skip this step. Um, I have an okay ego. I'm secure. So I go directly to watching the videos of myself and, and my other partners teaching right away. You know, I'm okay with that. And we do set up some ground rules and I'll talk about that. But either way, what are you looking for in these videotapes? 
Well, it's not productive just to sit down and watch them like a movie waiting to see what will happen. You should have a concrete goal, such as observing classroom management or observing the emotional atmosphere of the classroom. Now, many of these videotapes featured on the internet, if you watch those, are there for a particular reason. And it's clear why the person who posted the tape thought it was interesting. So this is a chance to practice observing and commenting on a specific classroom. So they may put one on like, you know, effective student engagement or active learning or getting a discussion. So you could watch those on a specific topic if that's helpful. But even if not, you're just going to watch each other's, your partners and your videos. Because again, you want to be clear. You don't want to just talk about everything and it's overwhelming. Pick one thing that you want your partner to know about it. And what do you want them to say and what do you want them to give you feedback on? So in general, comments should have the following two properties. First, they should be supportive. Being supportive doesn't mean you are there only to say positive things. It does mean that even when you're saying something negative, you are supporting the teacher you are observing. You know, again, the point of this exercise is not to spot the flaw, right? You're going to try to get better. And the positive comments should outnumber the negative ones. I know when listening to positive comments, a teacher can't help but think, wow, they're just saying that, you know, because they're supposed to say something positive. Even so, positive comments remind the teacher that they're doing a lot of things right. You're not looking for the positive, like, oh, I got to find some easy things to say to protect their ego. There's going to be good things in there. I mean, they're a teacher. They've been doing it hopefully for a while and they got some good things. So find those and share those. But also, you yeah, balance, there's some things that could be improved that they've asked you to look for. So again, those things should be acknowledged and reinforced if they're positive. Second, the comments should be concrete and about the behaviors you observe, not about qualities you infer. Thus, don't say, she really knows how to explain things. It doesn't really help. Instead, say, that third example she used really made the concept click for the students, something along those lines. You know, rather than telling your partner, your classroom management is a mess. <laughs> That's not very specific. It's not concrete. It would say something like, I noticed that a lot of the students were having trouble listening when you asked them to sit down. So then it's something specific. It's not you know, everything. It's a specific item. It, then you can key in on it and work on like, well, how to get the students engaged right away and calm down and paying attention. Now, as mentioned, you and your partner may decide, skip watching videos of other teachers you don't know from the internet, and instead jump right into watching and commenting on each other's videos. And that's okay. You know, that's what I do. But as long as you both agree and feel comfortable in what you will say, both feel that you know how to be supportive, then it's good. Jump right into that. So you should feel that you wouldn't mind if your partner's comments were directed at you instead of an unknown teacher on these earlier videotapes. No, they're going to come at you and you got to be prepared for that. They're not picking on you. They're looking for improvement. Now, ground rules should be established in advance. And some of these ground rules for commenting on each other's videos should be that they are supportive, as mentioned, concrete, and that they focus on behaviors. Because this process is now you know, interactive, there are a few additional things to think about. The teacher whose video is being viewed should set the goal for the session and explain what they would like the other teacher to watch for in the session. And it is vital that the viewer respect this request, even if you see something else on the video that you think is important. 
For example, if you want your partner to view a video of you teaching with the hope of getting some ideas about how to, um, let's say, engage your students more in a lesson on, say, it's recipe costing, right? You want to engage your students more in a lesson on recipe costing. And your partner says, I noticed some real classroom management issues here. That, that has nothing to do with the engagement, right? And you're going to feel bad. You're going to feel ambushed and you're not going to be motivated to continue the process. So you got to stick with what they want you to watch. You may see other things and want to talk about those, but you can't. You got to stick on script or what the goal is. And maybe later on, those things can come back out. There'll be the chance to talk about those. Now, what if you're reviewing a video of your partner and they keep wanting to work on trivial things and you notice that there are bigger problems that they're ignoring? Well, if you and your partner make a habit of taping yourselves, as I mentioned, there will likely be a time when this issue will come up naturally in the process, when you will be discussing something else. You and your partner also might consider, maybe you agree that after viewing a certain amount of videos, say five videos, each of you will suggest to the other that maybe they should work on something that hasn't come up yet. So you're watching a video and they want you to look at student engagement. They want you to look at, you know, how to get a discussion. But at the same time, you notice that there's, you know, something else going on, cheating or something else that you see, but they haven't asked you. So you don't really want to bring it up. It's an ambush. Stick with what they want, but keep that in the back of your mind. And then maybe you say, hey, after five videos of working on the goals that I want, you can say, well, anything else you notice outside of what I asked you to notice? And that'll be your kind of like the catch-all open forum where you can say, yes, I do want to talk about two other things that I see that I think I want to bring to your attention. And that could be a good ground rule. But again, do this in advance. Now, a final point. The purpose of watching your partner teach is to help them reflect on their performance, to think about their teaching. You do that by describing what you see. Don't suggest what the teacher should do differently unless you are asked. You don't want to come off as thinking you have all the answers, like you're this perfect teacher. You're just talking about what you see, right? Watching there, you do it by describing what you see. You're not going to say the answer to it. You're not going to say why you think it happens. You're not going to infer anything in there. Just observing. Again, if your partner wants your ideas about how to address an issue, she'll ask you or he'll ask you, in which case you should, of course, offer any ideas you have. But until you're asked, remain in the mode of a careful, supportive observer. And don't slip into the role of the expert fixer regardless of how confident you are that you have a good solution. Just say, I noticed the students had trouble settling down. That's it. Then if they say, yeah, I did notice that. Any suggestions on things you think I could do? Well, there's your door is open. Now you can say that, but you don't automatically jump in there and ought to start giving out answers and what you should do and do this and try this unless they ask. And that goes, you know, both ways. Now, step five, it's has no use if you don't bring it back to the classroom and do a follow-up. So whatever you're learning, you know, you're practicing now, just like a sports player, you've learned some new technique. When you play the game, you bring it into the game. So the purpose of videotaping yourself is to increase your awareness of what is happening in your classroom and to provide a new perspective on what you are actually doing and why and what your students are doing and why. With this awareness, you will almost certainly come to some resolve or to, to make some kind of changes, right? That's what the whole purpose is. So the way to do that is as follows. Make a plan that during a specific lesson, you will do one thing that addresses the issues with which you are concerned. Even if you think of three things that you want to do, do just one. 
and keep it simple. You're going to have plenty of chances to add in the other two things or three things or other things that you see. And of course, videotape the lesson so you can see what happened. If there's been improvement, if there's been change since the first time you saw it. Careful observations of a variety of classrooms will help you better recognize classroom dynamics and careful observations of your own classroom will help you recognize the, the dynamics that are typical of your own teaching. Background knowledge means not just subject matter knowledge. For a teacher, it also means knowledge of students and how they interact with you and how they interact with each other and with the material you teach. Careful observation, especially in this partnership with another person, another teacher, this is a good method for gaining that background knowledge, right? Takes, gives you a chance to step back, have perspective, look at it and say, wow, didn't really realize this. Here's the dynamics. Here's what I think I'm going to change. Then you make that change and you film it again. You say, did it happen? Did it help? Did it make it worse? What happened? And that's our practice. That's how we're trying to get better. Just like those athletes that are filming their batting stance and their swing, and then they make corrections in the next game, they do those swings and hopefully they're hitting better. Now, in the book, Tools for Teaching by Barbara Gross, there's a whole section dedicated to video recording and classroom observation. The book agrees that you know, watching a video recording of your teaching is a powerful and extremely valuable experience. Video, as I mentioned, allows you to see and hear yourself teach and observe the overall class atmosphere and your students' responses to your teaching. And by analyzing the dynamics in your classroom on video, you can check the, you know, the accuracy of your perception of your teaching and identifying those techniques that work and those that need revamping. You know, we all think we're good teachers, but we got to be honest. We watch those videos and we say, wow, I thought it was going better than that. Or maybe you thought it was going worse and it shows it's going better, but it gives us that other perspective and it shows part of your teaching portfolio that you're always learning. You're trying to grow. You're trying to always strive to be a better, effective teacher. Now in the book, which I will put a link to in the show notes in case you're interested in reading, it's great tools for teaching. There's lots of information in there and I'll put a link. You can get more information on it. In that same section, they also suggest that you use a checklist of some sort, you know, to kind of focus your analysis. So while you're watching the video, instead of just taking notes, if you have a checklist of certain things, you know, effective teaching kind of bullet points that you can look for those things. And they say, obviously you could come up with your own, right? That reflects your particular area of interest or what you're trying to hone in on, or you can use one, you know, that's pre-made. There's a lot of them out there on the internet. They give you some suggestions in the book. I've taken a lot of those and other ones I found. I've made my own checklist, something that I use when I'm, you know, doing videotaping of my own teaching. And if you're interested in that, I will put a link in the show notes where you can get a copy of that checklist if you'd like. It's a two page PDF document. Um, I'll put a link down. You click on it. Put in an email where it was sent to you and you'll get it sent right to your email box. And then you can take a look at it. You can, you know, change it adapt it, customize it, use it as is, whatever you'd like. And I'll put that below, but it'll be, um, um, if you go to chefroach.com slash chef educator, that's HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash chefroach.com forward slash chef educator. You'll see a little link in there and you can put in your email and it will send it right to you if you're interested in that. Now, as I've mentioned, the Three components of practice are 
getting informative feedback, seeking out other activities that can improve your skill, even if they're not practice of the skill itself, and consciously trying to improve your teaching. And those are those three components that we're working on here. Now, the last of these components sounds like the easiest to implement. Sure, you know, you want to improve, we all do, but how many of us have made a New Year's resolution only to find ourselves, you know, in for a second week of January floundering on that resolution, right? It's easy to say we're going to do something. It's easy to say I'm going to improve my teaching. I'm going to do this. But actually taking those steps is the hard part, right? The practice itself. Or, you know, we often make deals with ourselves. Okay, I'm going to start that diet I talked about tomorrow or next week or in February. Resolving to do something difficult is easy. Following through is the hard part, <laughs> right? Following through. So now we have this information. We're going to make changes in our teaching. We're going to make changes in our classroom practice. So we got to go and do it. So here's a few suggestions that might help. First, it might help to plan for the extra work that will be required. As I pointed out before, most of us are on autopilot most of the time. Rather than think through the optimal thing to do moment to moment, we retrieve from memory what we've done in the past. Well, teaching is no different. It is to be expected that once you have gained sufficient experience, you will teach on autopilot at least part of the time. And there's nothing wrong with that. However, serious work at improving your teaching means that you will be on autopilot less often, right? Now we're going to be conscious, right, of what we're doing in the classroom. We're trying to make those changes. Now it's going to be tiring and carefully thinking about things you don't do as well as you'd like to do, is going to be also emotionally draining. You may need a little extra support, right, from your spouse or your family or your your dean. You know, you're trying to do these things. You're getting tired. So you're also going to spend, obviously, more time on teaching. Now, you may need to think, well, where are these additional hours going to come from? Now, you're also going to have to spend more time or more time than usual reviewing what you are doing well and poorly in the classroom and planning how to do things differently than you've ever done than before. So these extra hours you're going to be spending on this each week, you know, that eight hours or three hours or one hour, whatever it is, where is that time going to come from? If you schedule extra time for this work, you're more likely to actually do it. So you just need to think about it. So you can't say, well, I don't have time for taking on this venture. You want to know that it's going to be some time that's going to be needed for this to be successful and where you're going to get that time and how you're going to carve it out. Maybe it's during your lunch break. You know, you're going to meet with the other instructor. Maybe it's on the weekends. Maybe it's at nights, one day a week, but just give that some thought. And finally, remember that you don't need to do everything at once. It's not realistic to expect to go from wherever you're at now to great in six months or a year because you're not trying to fix everything at once. You have to set priorities. Decide what is most important to you and focus on concrete, manageable steps to move you towards your goal. And if you don't have time right now to videotape yourself, that's okay. You can still start. Start small. Take smaller steps. You can still work on improving your teaching. Here's a few other ideas or ways that you can work on your teaching that are less time-consuming than doing this whole videotaping. One, keep a daily diary, you know, a teaching diary. Make notes that include what you intend to do and how you thought it went. You know, did the lesson basically work? If not, what are your thoughts as to why it didn't? 
Every so often, take a little time to read past entries, look for patterns, what sorts of lessons went well and which lessons didn't go well and what situations maybe frustrated you, you know, what didn't work in the classroom, what moments of teaching that really kept you going and so on. So then you can come up with what is working, what is it, and what do you need to focus in on. I write this right on my lesson plan. Right at the end, I said, right, what worked, what didn't work, what questions, what changes. So then I can make notes right while I'm teaching it. And then I review that before I teach the course again. And then I can say, oh, that video was terrible. The students didn't react. So I need to change that video or that activity worked great, but give myself another 15 minutes for it because, you know, we ran out of time or, you know, so I can make constant changes to my teaching, right? And my effectiveness for what's best for my students. Now, lots of people start a diary, but then find it difficult to stick with it. So here are a few tips that might help. First, try to find a time of day when you can write and make it a time that you're likely to be able to maintain. For example, if you're a morning person, maybe with your coffee or tea in the morning, you do your notes or you write your, your diary. Or at night person, maybe you choose to do it right before bed. And again, get on that schedule. Second, try to write something each day, even if it's only today was an average day. The consistency of pulling out the diary and writing something will help make it a habit. And third, remember that this project is solely for you. Don't worry about the quality of the writing. Don't feel guilty if you didn't write much. Don't beat yourself up if you miss a day or even a week. And if you do miss some time, don't try to catch up. You'll never remember what happened. And the thought of all that work will prevent you from starting again. Just skip those days and start where you're at. Finally, be honest, both in your criticism and in your praise. There's no reason not to dwell on moments that make you proud. So write them both down. Again, I personally do it right during class because I have spaces between my courses. So right after class, I'll have that lesson plan right there on my podium or the desk or in my notebook and I'll pull it out and I'll write right then while it's fresh in my mind. So I don't have to schedule it later on. Now, when I do teach the class again, I have to pull out all those lesson plans and look through them as I'm creating my course for the next time. But you find what works for you. Could be a little diary, could be a notepad, whatever that is. Another idea that you could do if you don't want to do that or you don't want to do the videotaping or you can't do it right now because of time restraints is to start a discussion group with fellow teachers. You know, get a group of teachers together for meetings, say once every two weeks. You know, there's lots of great things that can happen when you're around fellow educators that all have the same mindset of making improvements, but there are at least two purposes to, to this group. One purpose is to give and receive social support. You know, it's a chance for teachers to grumble about problems, share their successes, and so forth. But the goal is to feel connected and supported. Another purpose, not completely independent of that first one, is to serve as a forum for the teachers to bring up problems they're having and get ideas for solutions, you know, from the group. It's like best practices. You know, talk about it. Say, I'm having some trouble here. What do you think? What do you think? So it's not really that seeing your video of you doing that. You're just explaining what happens. And this can be a great way. You know, it's a good idea to be clear from the start, though, about whether your group is to serve the first function, the second function, or both. What is the purpose of the group? Maybe you write that down as kind of like a you know mission statement of why you're getting together. This could be done over lunch, brown bag lunchings, whatever you need to do. Maybe there's a teaching and learning society on your campus or someplace that does instructional design. They may have a space that they can dedicate for you all to get together and discuss these things. 
you know, again, be clear from the start whether your goal is to serve these different functions. If your group is very goal oriented, you can also have everyone read an article in a professional journal and then have a discussion on the topic. I've done that before with, you know, teachers from schools that I've worked in where, you know, there'll be a new article come out in one of our journals telling us about, you know, some new teaching technique and we'll bring, we'll all read it, kind of almost like a little book club. We'll get together and we'll say, what do we think about it? How can we apply it? Should we apply it? Is it worth applying? So again, just being around other teachers, practicing, always trying to improve to get better is better than just being experienced and just doing the day-to-day what we do on autopilot. Okay, so if you would like a copy of the video tape your teaching checklist, which I mentioned, uh, something I use with my own classes, again, go to that link that I just mentioned, which is uh, chefroach.com, which is my main website. Go to chefroach.com slash chefeducator, and you'll see a little place down there where you can put in your email, and it will be sent right to you. And please, if you do videotape your own teaching as a tool or use one of these other suggestions to try and help make you a more effective teacher, which I hope you all do, do something because we all need to keep practicing. Shoot me an email. Let me know how it's working for you, what you did, how it worked out. Was it good? Was it bad? You know, I'd love to hear, you know, your experiences. And you can email me at drprofessorchef at gmail.com, drprofessorchef at gmail.com. And I'll include that in the show notes. Let me know how it worked, what you did differently. You know, again, community of learners, it's great to share. I can talk about it on a future show or add that in. Well, that is all the time we have for this episode of the Chef Educator. Until we meet again, keep learning, keep teaching, and keep cooking. Thanks for listening and bye-bye.